Welcome to today's RTMA for July 13th. Let us jump in and get going. So looking at the Canadian economy to begin with, uh, the main news was about Labour Force Survey, which came out. So LFS stands for Labour Force Survey and reflects the market for June 14th to 20th is when the data was really was taken care of. So at this point, the reason why I pointed out is that um, many different public health restrictions across the country were being substantially eased. There were tighter restrictions remaining in southwestern Ontario, particularly in Toronto. As businesses and workplaces continued to reopen, physical distancing and other requirements remain in place, and large gatherings remain limited. Employers continue to adapt to workplaces to ensure that health and safety of employees and the public are paramount. Now, from February to April, 5.5 million Canadians were affected by the COVID-19 outbreak. And this included a 3 million decline in employment and an increase in absences from work due to COVID-19 of approximately two and a half million people. By the week of June 14th to 20th, the number of workers affected by the outbreak was down to 3.1 million, or a reduction of 43% since April. Employment rose by about 290,000 in May, but skyrocketed to 953,000, or a gain of 5.8% in June, as there were 488,000 new full-time jobs and 465,000 part-time jobs. However, even with these two consecutive months of gains in May and June, employment in June is still approximately 9.2%, or 1.8 million people, or 1.8 million jobs lower than in February of this year. The number of Canadians who were employed but worked less than half the usual hours, likely for COVID-19 reasons, dropped by 823,000 in June. Now you combine with declines recorded in May, this left absences from work 1.4 million above pre-COVID levels. The employment losses due to the speed and shutdown of the economy due to COVID-19 has been unprecedented as employment fell by 15.7% in two months. The 1981 and 82 recession resulted in a total employment decline of 5.4% or 612,000 over approximately 17 months. As restrictions have been eased in May and June, employment has recovered to win approximately 9.2% of pre-COVID levels, which is sharper than any previous downturn when recoveries have taken approximately two to five years to occur. The unemployment rate in June dropped 1.4% to 12.3% from a record high of 13.7 in May. This is the largest monthly decline on record, but the unemployment rate remains significantly higher than February when it was down to 5.6%. Approximately 2.5 million Canadians were unemployed in June, a decrease of 167,000 from May, but double the February level um, from this year. Dead employed includes three main categories, temporary layoffs, 
those who expect to return to their previous job within six months, those who do not expect to return to a previous job but are looking for work, and those who are expected to start a new job within four weeks. In April, 49.6% of unemployed were on temporary layoffs, and as COVID restrictions have eased and economic activity resumes, it's expected that the number of temporary layoffs will decrease as people return to their previous job or transition to new work. After holding steady in May, the number of temporary layoffs fell by 29.1%, or 347,000 in June, resulting in approximately one-third unemployed being temporarily laid off, while two-thirds were searching for work in June. The number of people who are active in the labor market, employed or unemployed, fell by 1.7 million between February and April. The declines are driven by gains in the number of people who wanted a job but didn't want to look for work, and those who were not looking for work at all. As restrictions have eased um, in June, particularly, the number of people participating in the labor force has increased. The overall labor force total has jumped 4.1% to reach 786,000 added um, after jumping 491,000 in May. So the total size of the labor force is approximately 443,000 people below pre-COVID levels. The labor force participation rate, which measures the labor force as a percentage of the population aged 15 and higher, rose by 2.4%. Uh, to reach 63.8 in June. And this is only slightly below 65.5, which was established in February. Across the country, all provinces recorded an increase in employment and a decrease in COVID-related absences in June. Employment in Ontario rose 378,000 new jobs, reflecting the first increase in the pandemic started. The proportion of employed people who worked less than half of their usual hours declined by 6.5% and down to 14.1%. The provincial unemployment rate dropped 1.4% to 12.2%. Quebec added another 248,000 jobs in June, on top of the 231,000 that were added in May. This brings their total employment to 92.2% of February levels, which is amazing. At the same time, the number of unemployed within the province fell by 119,000, 119, pushing the unemployment rate down to 10.7. British Columbia saw an additional 118,000 jobs being added, and uh, those who worked less than half their usual hours dropped by almost 3%. Across the western provinces, Saskatchewan saw their first gain since the shutdown began, and Alberta and Manitoba were able to generate job growth for the second consecutive month. Now, the reason why I bring all this up when we talk about jobs is we're seeing a very V-shaped recovery in terms of employment. And this is a good sign for the economy. It means people are going back to work. It means that um, social distancing and those measures have worked to curb um, the spread of COVID and you seeing the death tolls across the country fall. And, you know, we've kind of flattened the curve for sure. Um, and this will help the economic recovery in Canada continue uh, as more people go back to work. So there is still a, a significant amount that needs to go back to work. But um, the fact that we're seeing more and more people across the country enter the labor force is definitely a good sign.
to consider the uh, unemployment rate peaked in May at 13.7% and is slowly heading down. I would expect it to continue to head down um, as Ontario has continued to reopen their um, provincial economy and you'll see more people going back to work. And this will only help the stock market uh, continue to gain confidence in the Canadian economy, especially the TSX. Uh, this will help business confidence and consumer confidence increase and um, bring more um, positive movements to the to the market. And generally, it will help um, make it easier to make your 1% gains. Full-time work is up, as you can see, a significant retread from you know 1.4 million dollars 1.4 million losses we've added you know over 700,000 or half of those lo losses are gone part-time unemployment is back up we've almost wiped out half of those losses as well so gains are moving in the right direction and more importantly labor force participation rate is trending higher it means people are coming back to the workforce uh, people feel more confident about getting a job and this will translate into positive growth for both the economy and the stock market uh, the downside of all of this covid in terms of spending is that uh, the federal government is increasing its deficit as the impact of covid continues to to manifest itself across the country the federal government has assured canadians that they will continue to do what they can to support families and the economy as it stands, the federal government is expected to post a $343 billion deficit in 2021. Finance Minister Bill Morneau indicated that total government spending would skyrocket to $612 billion by 2021. This is nearly double the $346, spent, $346 billion spent in 2019. The jump in spending can be attributed to two key COVID-19 financial aid programs. The Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy, or CEWS, and the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, or CERB, um, which have been extended and expanded in recent months. The $343 billion deficit is six times higher than the $56 billion shortfall posted by uh, the Harper government during the depths of the Great Recession in 2009 and this will be the largest deficit on record, <clears throat> regardless of where it actually comes in. If it's 350 or if it's 310, it's gonna be the largest deficit by far. Now, CERB provides about $2,000 per month to people who have lost their jobs due to COVID, uh, and it was initially expected to cost about $25 billion. Last week, the projection increased to $80.5 billion through 2020 and 2021, as the NDP and Liberal governments uh, agreed to extend the benefit until October 4th. CEWS covers approximately 75% of employee wage costs for struggling businesses. It's now expected to cost up to $82.3 billion, up from the initial estimate of $73 billion. CEWS has been largely undersubscribed, <clears throat> and industry groups are saying that it's due to the delayed rollout from the government and it's not really an incentive for businesses to borrow from the government so the industry groups are saying the government has to tweak it a little bit to re-incentivize 
to get more applicants to take advantage of the program. Finance Minister Morneau declined to outline a long-term plan for unwinding or tweaking the two major programs, as he claims the government is focusing generally on supporting economic recovery. Now, even as the cost of servicing Canadian debt is, or even as these programs are ballooning, the cost of servicing Canadian debt is expected to fall due to near record low interest rates. Total debt servicing costs are expected to be 19.5 billion in 2021, down from 23.3 billion in 2019. Canada's new debt total is expected to reach 1.06 trillion in 2021, up from 385 billion last year. The mounting debts obviously come from the increased spending, but also as income taxes have been falling off a cliff, as uh, they're expecting to generate 195 billion in 2021, 20, in 2020-2021. So there are growing signs that the worst of the economic shock is behind the Canadian economy, but moving forward is the question is going to be, can the Canadian economy create revenues? And we need to find ways to create revenues because without growing uh, income, you can expect that future governments will stop to will will be forced to increase tax rates or cut other programs to quote unquote balance the books. But um, unfortunately for Canada, many of the drivers of Canadian GDP revolve around global trade. And one example would be the energy sector, which has been handcapped, handi sorry, handcuffed by the inability to ship additional barrels of oil outside of the United States. With reduction in global trade flows, it'll be difficult for the Canadian economy to recover, even as people are going back to work. In terms of GDP numbers, it has been driven over the last decade plus by consumers. Consumers spending more, consumers borrowing more, particularly for their homes. This is unsustainable uh, in these current times because consumers are saying, there's no guarantee I'm getting a, a raise. There's no guarantee my home prices are going to fund enough of my retirement. There's no guarantee that I'll be able to buy a new car next year, go on vacation. There's a lot of uncertainty in the consumer side of things. So if the consumer is unable to generate growth, where is growth going to come from? It has to come from higher taxes. An alternative would be to find a way to take advantage of Canada's natural resources and open up the economy, reduce corporate taxes to generate growth, things like that, so that income moves up. If you can generate more corporate income, if you can generate more income uh, through trade and things like that, you, as a, as a government, you won't be forced to increase taxes or cut programs in order to try and restore some budget uh, sanity. Granted, depending on how you look at it, um, we could just run a deficit for for the next decade or so, and still be competitive but that's a whole other topic just a few pipeline note news noteworthy things to look at 
Keystone has been delayed again. U.S. Supreme Court refused to let construction start on the project, rejecting a bid by President Trump to jumpstart the long-delayed project. Without explanation or noted dissent, the justices left in force part of a federal court order that blocks the use of a key federal permit. The justices have already cleared the way for other oil and gas pipeline construction projects to use the same permit, but they refuse it, refuse to allow it for Keystone. This has pushed the start of construction until 2021. The company told the high court that if they lifted the order, they would have been able to start construction in August, and this pipeline would have carried more crude than some OPEC countries. U.S. District Judge Brian Morris's order, which concerns a nationwide permit the Army Corps of Engineers has used to approve water crossings and expense and expansive, and expansive uh, bodies of water, is being pushed to um, use more local and statewide permits, which are more expensive and take longer to process. The rejection is obviously a setback for Alberta. They've committed $5.3 billion US to help fund the pipeline's construction. PC Energy is looking to, again, move forward with the project, but reevaluate its, its positions in, can, in the United States, but will continue to, will continue to uh, keep the same construction schedule they have in Canada already in place. So work in the US may slow down, but in Canada, it's not expected to move in the wrong direction. Pemina Pipeline Corp uh, has actually found the final federal permits for their LNG export project on the US West Coast. Analysts are still concerned the project could face significant delays. US Energy Secretary Dan Brouillette issued the final order to authorize the export of LNG, which is liquid natural gas, but the project still requires state-level approvals and it does remain a contentious project within the community. The goal of the pipeline is to provide a new outlet for natural gas for air from areas such as the Rockies Basin, but legal challenges that energy companies are facing over infrastructure projects make it difficult for the markets to celebrate any approvals of the projects. Last but not least, Shell Canada is considering a new carbon capture and storage project in Alberta. It is celebrating storing 5 million tons of CO2 in the past five years at its Quest CSS project in Fort Saskatchewan. So 5 million tons is uh, approximately taking off 1.25 million cars off the road. They're going to use this knowledge and technology in other world Dutch Shell projects to implement CSS all across the world. This includes the recently sanctioned Northern Light CSS project in Norway with, in conjunction with Total SA and Equinor ASA. Now the cost to build and operate these uh, new carbon capture storage facilities is actually coming in under budget and operation costs are approximately 35% lower than was originally forecast in 2015 because the underground reservoirs which store the CO2 are outperforming expectations. If Shell were to propose this project again, 
they would be able to cut the price tag down by 30 percent uh, because of how well the project has worked and the ability to store carbon uh, successfully is a major coup for the energy industry if this can be one of the vehicles used to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the future there is a new greenhouse or there's a new project in alberta um, where canadian natural resources is using carbon capture technology to you fill up an old oil sands mine uh, which will reduce carbon emissions again greatly so this is a great way to show how technology is helping improve environment despite the oil sands quote unquote polluting everything it touches so you can see how technology is being used to solve problems that environmentalists don't want to look at. Um, so the idea of punishing energy companies because of what they're using natural resources is absurd to me because we've seen them clean up tailing ponds. We've seen them now with the carbon capture technology. You know, Canada and the United States are doing way more to cut greenhouse gas emissions than countries like India and China and lots of places around the world so we are doing our part everybody else has to start doing theirs keeping with the theme of the energy sector there is some concern by the bank of canada because the canadian energy industry has borrowed heavily to survive a series of catastrophes and within the next six months it faces approximately six billion dollars in refinancing Maturing energy debts are the most on record for the fourth consecutive year and represent a 40% increase compared to 2019. These maturing debts are a real threat for many companies that are trying to weather one of the worst crises in decades. Companies with stronger credit ratings might be able to buy time in exchange for higher rates, but over time, this is going to cripple their bottom line. Companies typically have two main options for their unaffordable debts. They can swap debt for equity or convince note holders to extend their maturities. Several majors, such as Enbridge and Canadian Natural Resources, have already taken steps to cover their maturing debts, but the smaller players have fewer options and face more drastic changes. Now, the banks don't want, to want these companies to declare bankruptcy because they don't want to own these assets. The rebound in oil prices have resulted in a bit of growing hope there could be some recoveries but uh, things are looking bleak for energy companies overall many producers have used cheap debt to fund operations as share prices have lagged especially since the oil crash of 2014. canada's energy sector has struggled to recover as quickly as other countries because it's been nearly impossible to build pipelines to expand export capabilities as we head towards the end of 2020 if there is no significant and sustained growth in energy prices that would help boost uh, company profits, it is likely we're going to see more and more businesses declare bankruptcy, more dividends being cut, more jobs being lost, as these companies will not be able to survive the growing debt burden. And last but not least, um, U.S. wholesale inventories. Finally, some data which shows um, things are not all rosy in May. Many people thought um, 
there'd be a sharp increase in May. And some of the data has showed that in the United States, but some is showing that uh, not everything is as good as it seems. Imports have fallen to a near 10-year low, and this has further strengthened the idea that GDP in quarter two, 2020, will be the sharpest contraction economic growth since the Great Depression. Overall, wholesale inventories fell 1.2% in May, and the component that is used to calculate GDP has fallen by 0.7%. Goods imported fell to their lowest level since July of, 2020, or July of 2010, as the spread of the virus has suppressed demand and slowed global trade flows. Imports have been additionally suppressed due to the trade war with China. Typically, a shrinking uh, import bill is seen as something positive in terms of calculating GDP, but it has been overshadowed by an even larger decline in exports. The widening trade deficit combined with continued inventory drawdown are expected to contribute to the steepest decline in GDP on record. In the first quarter of 2020, GDP in the United States fell by 5% on an annualized basis. This is the sharpest decline in GDP since 2007-2009 when the Great Recession occurred. The decline in inventory was broad in May, but was led by a 5.1% decline in motor vehicle and parts inventories. So again, um, steep decline overall. March was bad, February was bad, January was bad, April rebounded, May came down. I would expect to see a, another decline in June, not as sharp necessarily as um, May's, but decline nonetheless. So that is it for us today. Have a great rest of trading week. Um, make sure you take advantage of the weather while it's still here. We're already halfway through June. The year is just flying by. Uh, stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye now.